0: Listeners, my name is Veronica Kim, and you are now listening to Unity in Christ. How did all of you spend the past week? I hope you spent your past week in fellowship with your Christian brothers and sisters. After moving to Arizona, there was a particular question that I often heard from my friends back in New Jersey. They asked me how I was surviving in a place where I didn't know anyone and had no one to confide in. This group of girls was very close to me, and we helped each other our difficult times by giving each other strength and courage. I think that they were asking me these questions because they were saddened by the fact that I was no longer there to share in their hard times, and because now I live on the other side of the country. Honestly, my friends were right in that it was hard at first to make any friends in a place where I didn't know anyone. However, I am so thankful to God that I have met such special people here at Heart and Soul Ministries, people that I can confide in and share my thoughts. I think it's very true that we all need someone that we can lean on. If you look in the dictionary to look up what cling means, it means to hold on tightly to or remain very close to. It can also mean to lean on something, to receive help from. But does it mean the same when we cling or hold tightly onto God. There are multiple examples in the Bible that tells us to cling or hold tightly onto our God. Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 20 says, "You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him." And shall swear by his name. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 20 says, By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding fast to him. The Bible teaches us to hold tightly unto God. We will continue our discussion after this song.
1: I've come to this ocean, and the waves of fear are starting to grow, and doubts and questions are rising with the time, so I'm clinging to the one sure thing I know, I will The hand of my Savior And I will hold on With all my might I will hold loosely To things that are fleeting And hold on to Jesus I will hold on to Jesus for life tried to hold many treasures. It just keeps slipping through my fingers like sand. But there's one treasure that means more than breath itself. So I'm clinging to it with everything I child holding on to a promise I will cling to his word and believe as I press on the table Jesus.
2: For life. Hold on.
0: The meaning of clinging to something in the dictionary can be to lean against something for support. The meaning of clinging on to or holding fast to has a deeper meaning in the Bible. The phrase cling to can be translated into the Hebrew word tabak. The meaning of the word tabak can be to hold fast to or to fasten its grip. Its meaning does not end there. The Hebrew word tabak can also mean to follow closely, pursue him closely, to overtake, and to remain steadfast. Genesis chapter 2 verse 24 says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is where the word tabak was used. When it says a man must be joined to his wife, joined to is the meaning of the word tabak. The two people that are closest to each other in the world, husband and wife. That relationship is the meaning of the Hebrew word dabak. There is also another example of dabak used in the Bible. That is when Jacob is running away from his uncle. When Laban was chasing after and pursuing Jacob, the word dabak is used to describe the situation. Genesis chapter 31 verse 23 tells us, that Laban pursued Jacob for seven days and he overtook him in the hill country of Gilead. To pursue is the meaning of Dabak. We are able to see the example of Dabak from Laban when he tries his best to pursue Jacob. When a man and a woman become one and form an intimate relationship, and when they are separated, they try their best to pursue the other. This is an example of the Bach. Moses tells the Israelites who are headed to the promised land to fear, love, obey the words of, and commands them to hold fast to God. He is not telling us to only seek God when we need Him or cling to Him when we need help. He tells us to always cling to Him. This is beyond the simple relationship of just leaning on or confiding in someone Are all of you holding on to Or pursuing God? To put it another way Are all of you showing the Bach to God?
2: And I close My eyes to see my King in majesty Your grace compels my soul to love and draw it close and I lift my hands and sing so God, to you I am. Now and still forever. Jesus, I surrender. Show me what I don't know. more of you. I'm desperate for your presence. Longing to be with you. Lead me to a new place more of you. Come on, you sing. Through the fire, I persevere. Come on. I won't submit to anything. Where I go, you've been before. All my trust. And all my trust is in you. Now it's still forever Jesus I surrender Show me what I don't know More of you I'm desperate for your presence Longing to be with you Lead me to a new place More of you Now it's still forever Jesus I surrender. show me what I don't know more of you I'm desperate for your presence, longing to be with you, leave me to a new. Jesus, you're
0: Coming up next is sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Your Day Wasn't This Bad, Part 2, based on Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 1 to chapter 2 verse 3. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua.
3: If we were to ignore God's judgment, his justice that part of God's character, I think it would be very similar to me inviting you to come over to my house and come into my backyard and play with my pet lion. And I would just say, hey, you know, I've got this great pet. I wanted you to come look at it. It's really cuddly. Um, he's got a lot of fur. He's beautiful. He's a beautiful, majestic looking animal. I mean, as you gaze at this animal, you're just going gonna to be enamored. I mean, I, I haven't seen many animals as beautiful as this animal. And so what I need you to do, I'm going to let you in. Um, just wait till I say Go and I want you to step in, and then I'm going to shut the door behind you, and I'm just going to leave you in there, okay? That probably would get me in some trouble, right? And somebody might start to think that, okay, if, if that's the way that you're introducing me to your pet lion, maybe there's more than this lion that he's cute, cuddly, and fuzzy. Right? And it's the same way when we introduce you to God. If we introduce you to God, and we say that you need to submit to God, that you need to obey God because He's your Creator, If we we say those kinds of things and we say, but there's no teeth in that lion. Then you're going to say, well, why does it matter that I know you're lying at all? Friends, I want you to know that God is a majestic lion. He is beautiful. He is glorious. When you stare at him, you're going to be amazed and filled with wonder. There is no greater God than God, the true God, the living God. There is no greater Savior than Jesus Christ, his son, who was sent for us. He was made for us to be amazed and filled with wonder at But friends, you also need to know that this is a God of justice and He will not have injustice done to Himself or to others. And so there's going to be a reckoning day for injustice. All injustice that we experience. God brings about justice Himself. It's going to happen. All sins will be punished. So as we look at God, even though that we know that Jesus, he, He didn't come back yesterday, Even though we know that, we do know that Jesus is coming back. And the thing that we need to ask ourselves when we consider our just God is, are we ready for that day? Are you ready? Are you ready for Jesus coming back? Are you living like you're ready? So the question that we should ask ourselves next is. What does the face of injustice look like? Which leads us to our second point. We just think about it. If if we know that we're going to have justice someday that's going to be ushered in and that injustice is punished, I think a really important question for my spiritual life is what does injustice look like so that I can avoid that, so that I can pursue God? So what does injustice look like? Second, worship and justice go hand in hand. Worship and justice, they go hand in hand. I know that a lot of us would like to take worship and justice, and we'd like to see those two things, the legal and, and the worship, that, that, that relational aspect. We'd like to take those things and sort of put those in different compartments, sort of open up the drawer and put worship in here and then close it. And then we'd like to pull out that, that legal drawer of righteousness, justice, and put it, put it in that drawer and then close it and just leave them separate in separate compartments. But that's not what God does. In fact, that's what the book of Zephaniah is teaching us. Worship is a legal issue with God. Worship is a legal issue with God. So you've got to ask, Why is God so angry and and are his actions a little over the top? I mean, he is so angry. We see all these fierce words of of, of justice being rained down. And so you have to say, you know, God, are you you a little over the top? I mean, is it really this big of a deal? Why, Why are you so ornery? Right? And then you would have to ask, is God's judgment just? Is he just to be so angry? Well, you may be outraged by the kinds of images that we have associated with God's judgment. That could be partly due to the pervasive severity of his punishments. I mean, when we look at those, those punishments this day, it is a terrific day. It is understandable for you to look at this day and to read about it and think to yourself, that's scary. It's meant to be scary. But it could also be due to the fact that you find it hard to relate to why it is that God is so angry. It seems to me to be a worship issue. But what is the relationship between worship and justice? How is it that those two things meet? Well, if we have a small view of God and a really big view of ourselves, we are going to have difficulty understanding God's judgment as being anything more than being simply vindictive. So in verse 17, we find that mankind has sinned against the Lord. What is sin? Sin is a violation of God's law. The Bible begins in Genesis 1 with telling us very clearly that God has a copyright on us. He made us. He's got authority over us, and therefore He has creative rights over us. And so if God has creative rights over us, then we need to, obey Him. We need to listen to His voice and do what He says. Well, in verse 12, we find that even the people of Jerusalem have turned from God. Now, pause just for a minute. Jerusalem is the city of God where His promised King is supposed to reign. And here in the very uh, central apex of what should be God's history, God's story, we find God's people disobeying Him, living in unrighteousness. For God, that is a big deal. It is a big deal for God's chosen people to be ignoring God. They're the people that are called to reflect Him clearly. And yet here what we find is they are stifling His image. So, those in verse 12 who say in their hearts the Lord will not do good nor will He do ill are actually God's chosen people, Jerusalem. The place where God's temple was. Where God's king ruled. Yet here, where God's attention and presence were experienced the most fully, they treated the name of the Lord as if it was nothing, as if it was valueless. I told you before that when you see Lord in the Bible, you might see it sometimes in all caps, sometimes it's not. When it's in all caps, it's speaking of Yahweh, the covenantal name of God that's given to God's people. So here what we find is is that God's people, God's covenant people have ignored God. The people that God has promised himself to. So I want you to just sort of put yourself in this frame of mind for for just a minute. Um, Imagine that you save somebody's life. That you risk your life to save somebody else's life. That you rescue them. And and after that moment, uh, that person completely just forgets about what it is that you've done for them and treats you like you're just any other guy or any other girl. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't you feel a little bit offended and saddened by that, that you had risked your life for this person, that you have done this noble thing? Even though I know you're not doing it for your glory, you're doing it for God's. But really, honestly, I mean, wouldn't you feel a little bit sad that a person wouldn't acknowledge you as being of worth for that? Well, think about God's chosen people in Jerusalem. This is a people that were a, a no-account people. They were slaves in Egypt. They're sitting there in slavery, in bondage. They are hopeless. And all of a sudden, in the middle of that, God comes in with his mighty hands. And without them lifting a sword, he rescues them from one of the most powerful nations in all of the world. Okay, fast forward a thousand years. People in Jerusalem are saying, uh, God, he doesn't, he's not going to do ill or good. God doesn't do anything. He's kind of a lazy God. He doesn't help us. He's absent. Can't you see how that would be a horrible way for God's people to respond to him, their great God, who had loved them? That's exactly what's happening here in Jerusalem. This God who has saved them, who has put His name on His people, they've rejected Him. In fact, what we find is, is that these people, actually, Israel, it is the worship of God that is calling down God's justice. Do you catch that? It, all throughout Zephaniah, the reason that God is bringing justice is because of worship issues. The fact that His people are not worshiping Him. Worship is simply submitting to and loving God and His Word. It's not fundamentally about music. Music is a small expression of our worship to God, but it's part of a bigger, life-type decision-making reality where with all of our lives, we're making decisions as though Christ Jesus is Lord over us. That's what worship is. You know, we, we make our lives a living sacrifice for God, that's what worship is, and so for the people of God, what they have a problem is is worship. In verse one four, we're told that even some of God's priests are worshiping Baal, and then in verse five, some of God's people are bowing down to worship stars, while they also bow to worship Yahweh. Verse six: these and others have turned from following the Lord. And they do not seek of the Lord or inquire after Him. They they do not talk. They are not relating with God. This is the thing that God's getting hyped up about. His people are ignoring Him. They are not praying to Him. They are not seeking Him. They are not living for Him. And by verse 18 in chapter 1, we find Yahweh saying, in the fire of His jealousy, God's jealous here, and He can do that. He's God. He's God. All the earth shall be consumed for a full and sudden end. He will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. And what is it that that God's so jealous about? It's His name being made great. The name of the Lord being made great. That's why His anger is burning in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. It's because His people have been slumming. They've been going after smaller, lesser idols, worshiping them as God rather than God himself. They're treating rubble and stars like their God rather than Yahweh, who's faithfully loved them. Not to mention that they're taking created things and, so, and substituting them for the Creator God. Now, from God's perspective, this is high treason, it's infidelity against the king. Worship is an issue of justice when you were created for the worship of God. If you were created for the worship of God and you're disobeying God by not worshiping Him, then it is an issue of justice. And here's the big problem. God's people are so wrapped up in sin in themselves that they couldn't begin to seek after the Lord. They are numb to the coming day. And numbness to the day of the Lord will lead to a numb life. Friends, if, if we become numb to the fact that there is a day of the Lord that's coming, where God is going to judge, then our lives are going to become numb and meaningless. They're going to become saltless and empty and shallow. And if we aren't thinking regularly about and anticipating that great and awesome day, if that's not the day that we're looking forward to, then we're going to become, I believe, petty Christians. I sense that in my own life. There are regular seasons where I become really you know, just kind of introverted, And I have to remind myself of the greater day that's coming. That even though the problems of today might seem so big and so so much like problems that I just can't overcome or deal with, that there's a greater day that's coming. And I can't forget that day because that's the day that I look to for with both fear and trepidation and hope. So we need to constantly be thinking about and reflecting on the day of the Lord. If we seek the day of the Lord, we are going to have a lively life. The day of the Lord in Zephaniah, what it's meant for us for, is Zephaniah intends it to be a day that we consider so that we live differently. Another way to put this for academians that's really going to bore you is our eschatology should affect our ethics. Our our understanding of the day, the end times that are to come, should affect the choices that we make in the here and now. That's the way that we should live looking forward to that day, living in the here and now based on what the future is to come. We live as though today could be the day that Christ shows up. In times motivate us now. That's what the New Testament says. The New Testament authors are constantly speaking of this great and awesome day that is to come. And what they say about this great and awesome day that is to come is that it should affect the way that we live. So I just I looked at, at some of the ways that the New Testament spoke of this. I'm not going to have Scripture references, but here's some ways that in times, the day of the Lord should change the here and now. We're told that it motivates us to be just in our treatment of others. Because God is just. One way that we serve and worship God is displaying justice to others. Seeking justice. To all men, we seek justice as much as we can, we can seek justice. Now, that's not the ultimate end. Social justice is not the ultimate end for us. The ultimate end that we want to see for people is for them to come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. But that doesn't mean that justice is unimportant. We need to reflect the character of our great God. It also motivates us to evangelize the lost. I mean, think about it. How bad of an evangelist are you going to be if you think that Jesus is never coming back? Right? Right? <clears throat> Like I'll get to it soon. You know. We've got plenty of time. You know, Jesus is going to come back someday, but never probably in my lifetime. Friends, that'll make for stale evangelism, but if, you really, if we really believe that Jesus is coming back, and I'm not saying that I'm, I want you to go out and hold a billboard up on Peoria, uh, not kind of our flavor, but I am saying that relationally with your friends and with your family, how hungry if we really believe that Jesus Christ could come back at any moment like he says he could, how much more passion and energy and faithfulness and prayer would we spend in evangelism? Today, it could be that we haven't told anybody of Christ in a really long time because we haven't really thought about the reality of Jesus Christ coming back. That it's not just something in a book like other books, it's something in the Word of God that's been given to us and it's promised to come about. We need to be sharpened and motivated to evangelize the lost. It motivates us to search our own hearts Because we know that someday Christ is going to come in with a lamp, like we were told in Zephaniah. Searching out, seeking out the hearts of His people, seeking out the land, seeking out the the sins of the world. We we should, in our own hearts, run and flee from sin. We should be motivated by that great and awesome day when Christ comes back and reveals our hearts, reveals our nature, reveals our deeds. The the, The end of the time, the day when Christ comes back, should motivate us to that. It should motivate us to to be patient amidst suffering. It's really easy, I think, when you find yourself in difficult times to really become inward focused and to forget about those who are out there and, and to forget about this great historical thing that God is doing in creation. You can become consumed by suffering. Suffering can burn you up. But suffering won't burn you up if you understand it in the context of God's greater plan where God is using you individually and us collectively to bring about glory to His name. Trusting that there's going to come a day of reckoning where justice will be poured out, where it will be seen that all of the sufferings that we have been given are a a beautiful sacrifice made to our great God. Suffering has meaning. It motivates us to understand that. It motivates us to rejoice even amidst suffering. Philippians 4.4 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Be an example. let your example of graciousness. Be known to all men. For the Lord is near. In other words, we, we should be gentle with all people, gracious with all people, loving with all people, and rejoice even in suffering. Even when times are difficult, because we know that a greater day is coming. And that great day that is to come is going to make all things right and we trust and hope in that. That's what the believer looks forward to. The day of the Lord motivates that. It motivates us to love other Christians, encouraging them to turn from sin. Because we know that that the brothers and sisters in Christ in this room, regardless of how old or how young you are, regardless of what race or gender you are, regardless of where you're coming from, regardless of how much money you have, one day Jesus Christ is going to come back and forever, we're going to be the family of God, knit together, spending time worshiping Him. And so we, we need to love now like it's a forever kind of love. That's the reality of what it means to be part of the family of God. So we are a, a people that are motivated by the return of Jesus Christ. It changes and affects the way that we live. In conclusion, we know that all of us have had bad days. We have been called by Zephaniah to anticipate a greater day. In fact, every bad day that you have is really just a foretaste of a greater bad day that is coming. I I hope that's encouraging to you. There's a greater bad day that's coming. Fortunately for us in Christ, it's a day of hope for us. But it at least gives us a small taste daily of the thing that we've been saved for. And we just amplify that time's infinity. This is the hope that we are given in Christ. So the day of the Lord is going to be horrific for those that are not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. In Jesus Christ, who is the Lord who ultimately will come and fulfill this prophecy of Zephaniah, this worldwide sweeping away. So friend, this morning, are you ready for that day? Are you living like it? I think all of us need to do some more.
2: Be more than this, oh breath of God, come breathe within.
0: Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. Following is a program on the Sermon on the Mount.
4: Hello, listeners, this is Brian Winston with the Sermon on the Mount. Up to this point, we have studied eight of the Beatitudes presented in the Sermon on the Mount. By studying these Beatitudes, we are able to learn more about Jesus and how these eight Beatitudes express the characteristics of Jesus. Therefore, we Christians who are promised the kingdom of heaven should try to acquire these same characteristics. If these eight Beatitudes show the essential characteristics of Jesus' disciples, then the following passages about salt and light tell us how we are to influence the world around us. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13-16 through 16 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything, except to be thrown out, And trampled underfoot by men, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I believe most of us are familiar with the words salt and light. When Jesus said, you are the salt and the light, it sounds like he thinks of us as people of value and people who are good. That is why when we see these words, we think that we must become important and useful like the salt and light of the world. However, Jesus does not tell us to become salt and light, but he tells us that we are the salt and light. If you believe that Jesus is your Savior, And we mold our lives with the characteristics portrayed in the eight Beatitudes through the Holy Spirit, then you are a disciple of Jesus and we are the salt and light. We have to realize we do not have to try to become the salt and the light, but that we are already the salt and the light through Jesus. Also, Jesus did not say that we are only salt and the light, but that we are the salt and the light of the world. He is telling us that the place where we need to show our work of being salt and light is in the world. These words are very important because it's very easy for us to live our lives, not as Christians that are ready to spread the words of Jesus to everybody in the world, but instead with only those we fellowship within our churches. But Jesus tells us to be the salt of the world and to light up the world. It is not the church that needs the salt and the light, but the dark and perishing world that needs it. Jesus proclaimed that we are the salt of the world and told us another truth about salt. In verse 13, Jesus says, But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? This means that the purpose of the salt is for the saltiness. But if it's tasteless then it loses its meaning and value. Even back in the days when there were no refrigerators, salt was used to preserve the food. Salt was and still is important in something that we need in our lives. Because the world does not know Jesus, it rots with sin. The followers of Jesus are like the salt that preserves righteousness in a corrupt and evil world. However, there is one condition. They must not lose the saltiness in order to show Jesus to the world through them. What would happen if salt loses its taste? The destiny of the tasteless salt is written in verse 13. It says that salt without taste is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. In fact, it is true that in the old times, tasteless salt was used as a material to rot the earth. When the Bible mentions deserted wastelands, it often uses the term land salt. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, it describes a land disaster. It says, All its land is brimstone and salt. In Ezekiel chapter 47, it says, But its swamps and marshes will not become fresh. They will be left for salt. In this way, the salt that loses its taste is thrown out and the land becomes a wasteland. The purpose of the salt is to preserve something from rotting. But when it loses its taste, it's not only thrown away, but it rots away altogether. If we do not become different from this world, then we lose our purpose and rot away with the world. Now let's learn about the importance of light. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, Jesus says, You are the light of the world. Jesus, who calls us the light, was the true light of the world. John chapter 1, verse 9, introduces Jesus as the true light, which coming into the world, enlightens every man. Jesus is not called the light because he is actually glowing or had an attractive appearance. The Bible actually states he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. Jesus is the light because he has life in him. In John it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. We as followers of Jesus, who were once walking in darkness, are now light through Jesus. The purpose of light is to remove darkness and light up the surrounding areas. Therefore, there is no one that turns on the light and covers it with a basket or a plate. They will try to get the most brightness by placing the light really high on top of something. That way the light will be able to light every room of the house. This describes what is said on verse 15. And in verse 16, it tells us why Jesus wants us to shine our light. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus tells us not to hide our light, but to shine it on the world. That way people will see our good works and glorify God. The focus of our good behavior is not us, but God. The people will not praise us for our good behavior, but glorify God by seeing our good deeds. What do we mean by good behavior? What is the relationship between our light and our good behavior? As explained before, Jesus is the light. The light of life is given to Jesus' followers. We have life through Jesus Christ, and that is why we have the light of Jesus in us. This is the reason why Jesus calls us the light. The traits described in the Beatitudes are the traits of Jesus and are the traits that we should follow. This is because we have Jesus' light in us. When we live by following Jesus' traits, then the people of the world will notice our good behavior. To mourn for their sins, to show meekness and forgiveness, to show righteousness, to show purity in your heart, like you would to God, and to allow them to have peace with God is all good behavior. People will become curious when they see our good behavior. They will think, why are they so different from us? When they find out that the difference is Jesus, their attention will be towards Jesus alone. This way, God in heaven will be glorified. Where is it that we should shine our light and live like the salt of the earth? It is the world and not the place with only other believers. It can be at school, work, the library, the market, with people you meet every day or with someone that you pass by. Are you showing your taste of salt in the light of Jesus at those places and to the people you come in contact with? Are you living by following the traits of Jesus and not of the world that welcomes all of the wrongdoings and the easy way out? I hope that we are able to answer yes when Jesus asks us this question. Today we learned about the salt and light, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. Next time, we will study Matthew chapter 5, verses 17-20 through 20, about Jesus who fulfills the law. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join us again as we continue our series with the Sermon on the Mount.
2: Mercy never ceasing, call for songs and loudest praise and teach me some melodious song, sung by flaming tongues above. Praise the mountain, fixed upon it, Mount of Light. Ever.
0: I miss New Jersey a lot, but if anyone asks me where I would like to live, my answer is always Arizona. That is because since living in Arizona, I have become closer to God, pursuing Him more. We do not pursue God or hold on to Him because we are weak. To hold fast to someone according to this world means to do it in times of need, when you need help. But that is not what it means in the Bible. Of course, there are times that I need help from God. But the more important thing is that I cling onto and hold fast to Him. I must pursue Him constantly so that I do not become separated from God because He is my Father. But when is it that a child begins to lose the need to cling to their father? It is when the child feels that they are all grown up or that they no longer need help. To live their lives. I do want all of us to grow spiritually, but I hope that growth is done correctly. I hope that we do not grow into a person who is able to do everything on their own. We must grow spiritually to need God more and more in our lives, not being able to do anything without God in our lives. We need to grow into a person that knows that we are nothing without God. We must hold fast unto God as we learn how faithful and loving He is, showing us so much grace as we grow spiritually. I pray that you spend the next week clinging to God and pursuing Him every day, living your lives as an example of Dabak. I hope to see all of you again next week. Have a wonderful week and God bless.
5: I was sure by now I'll raise my hands and praise the God who gives and takes away. Strength is almost gone. How can I carry on if I can't find you? But as the thunder rolls, I barely hear you whisper through the rain. I'm with you. And as your mercy falls, I'll raise my hands and praise the God who gives. Takes away, and I'll praise You in this storm. from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth.